Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. And since the odds are pretty good that if you're listening to this, you are a human being, I think it's reasonably safe to say that our place in time is sandwiched in between human generations. Part of the necessary boot-up kit for culture is intergenerational discourse, and specifically grandparents and elders. Seems like all of the animals that have culture, legitimate culture, we're talking humans, orcas, elephants, all of them also have grandparents. They have specifically mothers that have aged out of the reproductive game and are there to transfer their wisdom, share in the village duties of child rearing, and generally keep the next wave from repeating their mistakes. This is essentially human. And if we are to understand what comes next, if we are to understand what builds on, what transcends and includes the human, then we have to understand how to reboot intergenerational discourse in a society where our obsession with youth has all but eroded away our understanding of the vital importance of multi-generational conversations and the crucial social functions we perform early and late in life when we're not economic producers and are thus, in some sense, economically invisible. If we want a wisdom economy, we have to start by acknowledging that wisdom even exists, right? So it is with great pleasure that I introduce you to the crew behind Future Primitive Podcast, Joanna Harcourt-Smith, Jose Luis Soler, and Jacob Amon. Joanna was a guest on Future Fossils episode 20, if you want a more intimate exchange between us, and it was actually rather juicy. But in this one, we take a roundtable approach and talk to the entire team, including her partner Jose and Future Primitive's man behind the curtain, Jacob, who has done an extraordinary job of helping revitalize that very long-running and esteemed podcast. When I was up in Santa Fe this summer for the Interplanetary Festival at Santa Fe Institute, I paid them all a visit, and this warm and wonderful discussion is the result. I'm really glad to share it with you, but first, I want to give a shout-out to the new Patreon supporters this week— Nick Mann and Javier, thank you both so much for supporting the show. It's what helps me keep these episodes flowing in spite of the extraordinary amount of time it takes for me to edit and publish everything. If you don't already know, patreon.com slash Michael Garfield has extensive free archives of cool stuff and a completely absurd, ludicrous, overachieving set of perks for anybody that wants to help out. So go check that out if you please. Also, thanks. We made it to 100 reviews on iTunes. A little party went off in my heart when I saw that, and I'm super appreciative of that because, as I'm sure you all know, algorithmic recommendation engines are the way that podcasts like this one are discovered the other way is by word of mouth so thanks everyone who has been sharing these shows with your friends slowly but surely i can feel the influx of new people into the future fossils facebook discussion group and it is a joy 
to see those conversations take on more of a life of their own. It's really becoming a community in there, and it's exciting. And so I'm glad to have you all on board. And lastly, a special thank you to transhumanity.net for being the featured sponsor of Future Fossils. Go check them out. They just started their own totally bizarre and exciting podcast called The Technocracy that is written, produced, and published by an AI, which totally blows my mind. And obviously, they're a great place to go for your future news. So without any further ado, here's Joanna Harcourt-Smith, Jose Luis Soler, and Jacob Amon, the team of Future Primitive Podcast in an intergenerational discourse about intergenerational discourse because we like to keep it meta here. Enjoy, and thanks so much for listening. And I'll talk to you next week. So we were talking about listening and intergenerational communication and uh yeah yeah i mean i i remember very well that in the well i don't remember the 40s too well but uh the 40s 50s and early 60s people had not learned because i think that it's a learning thing i mean i've learned to listen to people. I've consciously learned to listen. And I find that with younger people, I feel more heard. Mm. What do you think? Could be that we just have less stuff that's constantly going through our minds, you know, less anxiety and stress, but I don't know. I don't know the statistics of that. What? you got to be kidding me, right? Yes. <laughs> I wanna, okay, so there's, this ties into... At Sinegear Ranch last night, after dinner, they put on every, I guess after every Tuesday night dinner, they watch a little movie, uh, and they have started serializing Wild Wild Country, mm -hmm. which is, you know, about Rajnas Puram. Yeah. yeah. And, and the conversation that we ended up in after watching part two of this was, you know, which is the part where you start to see the relations between the followers of Bhagwan and then you see the, the people of Antelope, Oregon, and it starts to escalate and there's a bombing in the Portland hotel. And suddenly the, the followers in red are all, you know, carrying machine guns. And it reminded me of this, the, this other documentary uh, about Austin, Texas mm -hmm. called the unforeseen. It was about development in Austin and how Austin used to be this sleepy little place and it's just being eaten by this remarkably accelerated growth. That whole area of Texas is, you know, it's, it's all being, all this stuff that's being built on top of the aquifer and like really, really jeopardizing the way of life there. And there's a similar kind of Greek tragic dynamic in both of these documentaries about the people who are coming in with expectations of how of, of the sort of social guarantees that we have in america you know life liberty and property you know my you know this is my stuff i'm playing by your rules 
this is what I'm expected to be, you know, these are my expectations for what I have in my life and what I'm allowed to do on my own land, right? And then there are the people around them who are saying like, whoa, like this is way too much. This is way too fast. You're not paying attention to what's already here. And it's funny that this kind of thing, even if, I mean, whether it's in the, the relationship between developers and hippies on the one hand, or like basically like cult members and uh, conservative ranchers on the other hand, like those, in a way those two stories are flipped, but they're telling the same story, mm -hmm. which is this lack of concern that we saw. Both of them were about the 1980s. It's about how neither of these documentaries shows any member of any party reaching across the aisle and saying, how can we make this work? You know, none of them are saying, like, what are your needs and how can we fulfill your needs? They're saying it's my way versus your way and I'm in the right. And and it's it's like tragic and terrible to see no matter what side it is, the people that are claiming to be conscious are not making an effort to well, yeah. mediate this at all. What was one of the most interesting things that I got out of that whole series was that the small population of European people that were in the town of Antelope had only been there for just over a century, if that. I mean, they'd just gotten there. Yeah. I don't know if there were native peoples out there before, but I'm sure they you know, migrated through the area and they managed some of the ecology. And... And I think that's what Sheila, the helper of Rajneesh, who made a lot of the good and terrible things happen there without him really paying attention, apparently, at first, really saw that because she read the Constitution, right? She talks about that. And she believed that they would have all these protections. Well, what she didn't know was that the founder of Nike lived in that town and had a lot of political bandwidth. And if they had selected a different town that had less powerful individuals in it, they probably would have gotten away with it more without having to resort to bioterrorism. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it was really fascinating to see like, wow, like, yeah, these people just, they're just threatened by this, this foreign culture. And, you know, there's pl plenty of healthy skepticism that, that those town folk should have had about this group because Anybody that wears all the same clothes, I'm sorry, but it's just kind of weird. Like, why? I'm not going to critique certain ones because I could get in trouble. But, yeah, that, it, it's such a fascinating case study on the American dream. Well, you know, these days I look at everything from the Me Too point of view. Mm. Because it feels to me that it's, it's just been so long. Yeah. Uh, that the perspective on women is changing. I mean, this thing of listening to, um, oops, his name escapes me, uh, Seymour Hirsch, yeah. yesterday on NPR saying, um, oh, well, yeah, he broke, Nixon broke Pat Nixon's nose and she was in the hospital, but we didn't report on that because it just wasn't on the radar that it was bad. Yeah. He said that yesterday morning at seven, eight o'clock. And, uh, oh, but now with the Me Too movement, everything's changed. It's Seymour Hirsch. I've admired him since the late sixties. So back to what we were talking about. So I, uh, you know, I posted on Facebook about how um, 
in the 60s and 70s. It was no big deal about a man hitting a woman. And I didn't know where to turn and so on. So back to nobody understands when I do this impersonation in um, in uh, Wild Wild Country after Sheila right. leaves. <laughs> you know, it's my favorite impersonation. Good, well. After Sheila leaves, supposedly he comes out of silence after five years or whatever. Sorry <laughs> to spoil it for you, but he talks for the first time. Pre video games. Right. Otherwise, he probably would have been. Yeah, 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 right. And then, so he comes out in front of the press and all his devotees, and he goes, Sila, that bitch, that's why men don't sleep with their secretary. And I keep repeating that. People don't understand that it's it's not so much the part of Sheila, that bitch. Of course he was feeling like that. But the mentality, all this free sex and everybody is equal and blah, blah, blah. And he's saying, men don't sleep with their secretaries. Right? Drove me nuts. Yeah, that was was rich, to say the least. (laughs) So this attitude towards women is, uh, it's like everything else that gets uncovered. You never knew the cover-up was so deep until we reach the conversation about the cover-up. But she helped evolve things, right? Because she wasn't passive and she fought him and she didn't just become subservient to him because of her beliefs that he was some, you know, guru, sage, whatever. I mean... It's hard because you sympathize with her on some levels. Not that we have to talk about. Oh well, was Adam was Adam a guru? Was Adam a guru? What Eve fed him was Adam of Mm, Adam and Eve. Was he a guru when he fed him the LSD uh, apple Mm -hmm. for him to? (laughs) So this this thing about listening, you just you just pointed to this. It's like, I really feel this on a, like an animal training level. There's this thing about, like, I feel like most of our relationships, we talk very highly, you know, we speak very, you know, our rationality and so on. But so much of human cultural interaction is at this level of, uh, like, mammalian dominance energy exchange, you know, that, like, I, I know these... I have friends whom I love, but who are stuck in this constant adolescent, like, testing of me. Like, that it's like, there's a a power thing, and they're trying to, like, be the dominant one in the relationship. And I don't think they're aware that they're doing it. You know, that it's, that it's, there's all of this stuff. And it seems like when, when, when there's, like, a listening issue, a lot of it is, well, why wasn't I listening to you? And it's like the same thing was, well, why wasn't I speaking up about this or speaking with authority? And that there's this thing about if someone can speak with authority, then they speak with power and they're able to be heard. But it's like a it's like a, a, a chicken or egg thing. But it's probably so you more have to give them a... it's probably more evolved to have a, a more um, percentage based kind of evaluation of certitude, you know, that 
if you're not as confident about your knowledge of something, but you might actually have more to contribute on it than someone who is really arrogant. And that's where a lot of the whole, coming back to me too, mansplaining um, mm. is always, it's hilarious when you encounter people that are really bad at it and it's, it's annoying. And I think younger generations of women, I, this is again, it's totally anecdotal, but I see younger women sometimes helping older women be like, no, like you gotta, <laughs> don't take that. Like you gotta, you gotta at least say your piece and stop letting them, you know, interrupt you or, or, uh, walk over you in that way. Um, I guess that's one thing that is probably changing pretty rapidly. That's beautiful. I mean, kind of thing that touches me, yes, it's like that, but kind of thing, uh, I forgot, like a couple of weeks ago, I went over to somebody's house, and uh, their son and uh, was on the, on the balcony on the, in, a, in the yard with a young woman and a young man. And they were in their late twenties, and uh, he gets up. I've got it here. That's right. He gets up and he throws himself in my arms, and he says, "Oh, do you remember when we were on mushrooms uh, at uh, Ted Anderson's, and you spoke up, and it really changed some pieces of the puzzle in my mind." And it was so beautiful because, you know, I forgot, but she made me think about it because at a certain point in that trip, there were only men. I think there were only men at some point. Yeah. And you? And me. Yeah. And the fire was going. And I got up and I started telling them what I'd been through as a woman and really screaming but in a really beautiful way, like really because of the wonderful medicine, just really posed in my belly, just saying, hey, you need to, uh, you need to hear what it does in the gut, even after 30 years. Away. Well, yeah. Did you hear that interview with Bill Clinton this week where he was, I, I still understand what he means, but he was saying that he publicly apologized to Monica Lewinsky, her family, and his family, yada, yada. And then the interviewer uh, from CNN or something, he asked again, you know, did you ever personally apologize? And he said no. And, I mean, can you imagine, like, I don't know how much it would really help her at this point, but everything that she's gone A through. Lot. But, yeah, I mean... Someone should be like, dude, <laughs> it's time. You could do it still. You know, there's not too late, right? I mean, she's she's public somewhat in the last year, especially after Me Too, right? Because she wrote that be blog article. Yeah. But so she, that that that, that uh, it seems like Me Too. When you're not alone, it's easier to speak up. You know that you have the support, and you know if you pose that against. This thing that, that you mentioned, Jacob, about how the more sure we are, they, they know this from brain studies. It's like the, the people who have the least self-awareness are like the happiest and most confident, you know, and it's the, it's the philosophers that are like really introspective <laughs> and, and, you know, shining a light on their own minds that are like, well, I don't really know. It's the right. saint that knows they're a sinner, you know, and that there's, 
there's something about this to, to loop it back to what we were talking about before we even began recording about the way that social media has uh, exploited our outrage, that people are confident about the thing that they're like righteous about, that, but to be righteous doesn't mean that you're right. And so we end up in this, this, we've ended up in a system where we have rewarded with attention the loudest, most horrible, boorish people who refuse, who are probably on some level neurologically incapable of listening to each other. You know, that, that so the social media as a platform, which is, you know, more and more the primary platform of communication in our society, is... Uh, just a shouting match. Yeah, I think it's devolving people's ability to, commu to communicate. That's why I don't talk. I, I did talk politics during the election cycle in 2016, and I was pretty, you know, into Bernie and stuff. But then after I got bummed out about him, you know, not working out, then I kind of backed off. And yeah, I mean, I mean, and now what? It's there's a 20 percentage drop in young people's usage of Facebook, especially. Um, in the last couple of years, and um, maybe it will continue to people will continue to realize that it, the way it's currently configured doesn't mean that it's inherently impossible to connect with people in deep social ways online, but the way it's currently set up is is harmful. Um, I don't know. It seems like people are realizing that, and there's a lot of do you backlash. think that, do you think that the the people ditching Facebook is sort of like people shutting up when they're oppressed. You know, like, like, do you think it's more about like the likelihood of a woman to remain quiet in a room full of men? That it's like, we know we don't have a voice, so we're just clocking out. You know, I worry about that. Yeah. I want to go to two points there. And one is when you said that it's known uh, in neuroscience that the more you know, the more inquieto, the more what's nervous you are, or whatever. Um, I think this is where it's important to seek out the elders, back to the conversation mm -hmm. of the 60s and the 2020s or whatever. It's important to seek out the elders that have been able to, like myself, sit inside myself and feel immense gratitude again to go back to the medicines to have lived in a time where yes I got sober from alcohol but every three times a year I make sure to take psychedelics so as to fortify my soul and uh, Whatever knowledge I have acquired, which is um, substantial, thank you, is <laughs> uh, is measured because of the medicines. I really think is measured by self love and compassion. Yeah. So to keep the balance, seek out the elders who can make the balance. And I've noticed that most of the people my age, in the that I've met who have written books and who are conscious, who are, they're kind and they're compassionate, crisp age, adorable, and on and on like that. So, 
to seek out those who don't go apeshit because they're in their head and they've learned a tremendous amount of stuff and there's so much more. But seek out the others uh, that feel grateful and comfortable. And for instance, like I know, probably I'm going on 73, uh, it is my wish that I have seven more years of, of vigorous life. Thank you. <laughs> and, and what I mean by that, and that, that, the, that the compassion and the self-love grow at the same time as the knowledge. Yeah, the other thing that um, elders, especially elders that put it on the line and put their, you know, risk their lives for social change in the past, the value in young people talking to them is also to gain their, you know, benefit from their experience and observing the patterns of human culture, the pa the cyclical patterns of human society and how we go through these kinds of shifts. And change and there's you know lots of people who have documented that Ralph Abraham's book well, Chaos Guy talks about that. He is. Yeah, I mean you introduced me to him. Yeah, that really you know, is a measure for me. And he's totally brilliant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, if sweetheart doesn't go with brilliant, by the time you get to seventy, <laughs> you can go to a home for old people. You know, yeah. I, mean, I say, I say it's either either grateful. Bitter. But that's, mm. yeah, that's something that I felt was missing in the Occupy movement was that younger people were not really reaching out to their elders who had gone through the cultural transformation in the 60s, early 70s, and to learn about how uh, FBI and COINTELPRO and CIA did infiltrate things and that the government has a responsibility to surveil on some levels but and protect people, but also, you know, where there's obfuscation and manipulation. And that is really important to learn those lessons from previous generations so that we don't just hit up against the same kind of protest fatigue, which these poor kids that are fighting against gun reform now are... They seem like they have a lot of stamina, but I mean, it's going to be <laughs> tough. Teenagers, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're just getting started and um, we just don't want them to become cynical in a couple of years, you know, because that's really depressing when you feel like the system, the United States system is so out of control and such a threat to global peace on certain levels that and our own welfare. Yeah. Don't you see that kind of, I mean, this really loops back again to this issue of, you know, when I look at Occupy, even defining yourself as the 99% against the 1% is getting off on the wrong foot. Yeah, that's pretty yeah. tough. You know, and it's, it, it reproduces exactly that kind of tragic dyad that we were talking about in Wild Wild Country or in The Unforeseen, mm -hmm. where, like you said, they're not listening to their elders, right? But they're also not listening to the so-called opponent, you know, and, and I, you know, I just listened to a fabulous episode of my friend's podcast, Third Eye Drops, where he was interviewing uh, Richard Doyle of Penn State. I love him. He's been yes, like yes, yeah. yes. Richard Doyle is such an entertainer. Oh. Like, he's, a, he's an extraordinary mind. And he's a, there you go, he's a sweetheart. He is. Yes. He's, he's, yeah, very much. Very much know, from the heart. When I, talked to, when I talked to him about, just as an aside, when I, when I spoke to him about the problems that I'd been having 
in some of the non the communities of non-dual practice that I was participating in, you know, where they were kind of coming at it from this again, like some of these people were, you know, members of Osho's ashram and and had this very like, you know, the guru is infallible kind of attitude. And just saying, you know, yeah, when you're awakened, then, you know, anything is like it's, you know, it's off limits, which sounds a whole lot like the kind of Trump fiat, like I'm king of America and I get to do what I want, you know. And so, you know, uh, Doyle was talking about in on Third Eye Drops, he was talking about how this, um, you know, the, the problem here is that when you imagine yourself to be over here in opposition to this other thing, then you're basically like spinning your wheels in the sand. You know, you're not going to accomplish anything because you're not actually acting on an accurate model of the real, you know, and the, the real is that everything uh, evolves together, you know, and so it really does seem exactly. Yeah, it does seem like the next the next true social movement. And it's not going to come from these high schoolers because, I mean, they're they're They've learned uh, very well how to, you know, pump their fists and raise a lot of noise and generate friction in society. And that's not that's not going to accomplish what they think it is. Oh, and because then they're, they're in deep trauma and uh, you, can't, you can't, that's the same thing as what you were saying about what Rick Doyle said. I mean, you can't accomplish something by creating more trauma. Yeah. Well, and they're just beginning to comprehend the messiness of our whole electoral system and, <laughs> and how percentages don't actually mean that much uh, with gerrymandering and everything. So, yeah. Well, I mean, but... Yeah, so, so where do you, Joanna, where do you, where do you see promise in this? Like, we're not, like, where do you see us as not merely recreating the mistakes of the 1960s in this next wave of political upheaval and social change? Well, I think that it's um, the generation of the 60s and early 70s came out of two world wars, parents that had trauma, again, two world wars, 60 million people had died. That's phenomenal. So it was a reaction. The 60s, whole 60s trip was a reaction. And thank the universe, whatever that is, in its sublime creativity, that the atom bomb and LSD came at the same time. To me, that's absolutely no accident. Long story short, uh, parents abused their children terribly yeah. uh, because they didn't know what else to do. That's what Charles Shaw talks about quite yeah. a bit. Right? And the parents were made to abuse their children so that they would go to wars because of this this territorial <clears throat> mentality and this this con constant threat mentality. Just uh, well, like this one guy I was sharing a Ramadan meal on the floor said to me, he said, do you know why the rich abuse their children? Oh, because I was, I grew up with those people and turned on them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> He said to me, because otherwise they would give all the money away. And I went, wow, that's so far out. That's like, if you don't drink, you don't get drunk, you know. 
And I think it's the same thing. Many people of the 60s generation came out of those wars and came out of a technique of abuse. You know, you don't pick up the children who are crying in the crib. Right. I don't know. So the, let's go to the beginning. I think, anyway, a lot of you guys have not been abused in the same way. But there's levels of disconnection that are happening now that are so different from Vietnam because the media changed during the 60s. You had more depiction of the gruesomeness of the war. And now things are getting more and more disconnected. It's more and more far removed from the actual experience. You know, people flying drones and stuff. And American troops are, don't have their lives on the line as much as they did then. Or they do, but it's from suicide. You know, it's it's underreported after yeah. effects of yeah, yeah. what's what's right. been going on. It's 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 trauma from that right. dissociation. Yeah. You know, from being like from yeah. knowing while you're piloting a, a predator drone or a reaper drone that you're killing actual people and that it's not just a video game. And yet, that's the way that our world has set things up for us: is that we've disconnected the cause and the effect. You know, that we live in this system that we're. Uh, Daniel Schmachtenberger of Neurohacker Collective talked about this on, on my show. He said, you know, that we, we have input from all over the world. You know, we're aware of something that's going on everywhere, but we don't, the, the, the sense input and the muscle output aren't connected. And that people don't know how to actually affect a change based on the, in, the news that they're receiving. And so we're, we, it's like people are pulling out. And, you know, in different ways, whether that's the float tank, you know, just to like, you know, equilibrate or whether it's genuinely just removing oneself from participation in society because we're all just, you know, convinced we're cynical, like you said, convinced that we can't actually make a difference. It's like it seems like part of what's happening now is we're keenly aware that we need new structures whereby uh, quorum sensing, you know, kind of collective decision making can occur that doesn't look like the agonizingly slow, completely obsolete forms of representative government that we have. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that's I mean, that's just, uh, you know, to think about the work of that is daunting. And you see, I, I think about that totally upside down from what you're saying. I think that. Uh, it takes enormous humility to see what difference you are making. To really, it's almost like using a uh, a telescope. You know, you have to be. You, as the years go by, you have to become more and more humble about the difference that you're making, and the joy of that humble difference is enormous. It's like the story I was telling you about this guy in the garden, right? He jumped up to me. The, the joy and the feeling of really uh, having a purpose, no matter how tiny it is, that joy is like uh, wonderful smoke, incense that goes out and is very, very useful. You think about changing, changing. Look, a week ago, tell, tell about Spain a week ago. 
yeah, it's, it, it's been uh, uh, unexpected, uh, but at the same time, it was very expected, but this amazing change in, in politics. Uh, there was a terminal phase of this, the conservative government, the popular, popular party, Partido Popular, and there was more and more cases of corruption and more and more authoritarian and these horrible dynamics. Like populist party. Yeah, but right wing, very, very close to, in the spirit to, I would say, to, to what is happening here. And at some point, the coalition of uh, Socialist Party plus Podemos Party, kind of the party that came from the crystallization of the Spanish Occupy, so to speak, they came together and they initiated this very quick process of basically something kind of an impeachment, and they succeeded. And now there is three days now of a socialist government with 80% of uh, women ministers. And, and, I mean, amazing. And it's, it's kind of, wow, it can happen. Anything can happen in, the, in this case. This is in Cal- Catalonia? No, in Spain. Spain. See, in Spain. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, no. It's, it's Spain. So the whole country. And Trump shows. Spain is breathing <laughs> now. It's like, like beginning to, to, to dare to imagine that we can, we can do better. We can initiate a new narrative, a new dreaming. So, Ten years yeah. of authoritarian yeah. right wing, yeah. and within three days it's gone. Do you think that's possible in a country as large as the United States? Because, you know, like, there's that great, there's a Bluebeard, uh, Kurt Vonnegut says, any country larger than Denmark is a damn fool's mistake. <laughs> you know, like, you know I, I, it feels to me like part of the issue, yeah, that you talk about humility, right? And part of the humility is like disabusing ourselves of the notion of empire, you know, and accepting that we can't really, we don't know how to govern at that scale, I can't. I don't know. Mm. I can't imagine. I don't know. Because I'm it's, all for the balkanization of the United States if it'll lead to solution like situation like Spain, mm. where you know where people can it's actually. It's so hard here because we have such a massive amount of military infrastructure and <laughs> spending. I mean, just the amount of resources that are put into the military here. I mean, if you look at people, all these people in California that wanted to secede. Um, after Trump got elected, um, there's so much military infrastructure in California. Shout there's no Bruce way. Neighbor, the yeah, well, that... Canadians. But Bruce was great because that's what I met him was during Occupy. And he had this um, very Canadian plan for the United States transition into a reasonable democracy. And I loved it because Bruce had gone to South America after apartheid. And then he was also in Czechoslovakia after the wall fell and, and saw the transition times a little bit and how they suspended a lot of government function and things still flowed, you know, whereas in this country, it seems sometimes it feels like we're such a powder keg that if we don't have the loaded gun pointed at us, we would be in total anarchy. And then sometimes you're just amazed by the multicultural beauty that happens in this country from all sorts of cultures and races and people doing incredible things together. And that, again, inspires you to believe in this vision of uniting peoples, mixing it up, you know, sleeping with all sorts of different people. And yeah, 
and then. But that's that was the biggest. We were talking about this you earlier. You that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Joanna, <laughs> Joanna's pushed that on me. She's she's still a, a '60s kid. All kinds of different people, yeah. really, absolutely. But we were talking about of that every earlier. gender. Is the uh, the rise of nationalism in parts of Europe, and there were certain podcasts that I used to listen to, like Red Eyes Creations, and then mm-hmm. I had to abandon that because it became anti-Semitic and just totally revisionist history, which history is complicated, but when you start going off on a very opposite end that, you know, yeah, (laughs) classic. So I was reading about the muses of Greek mythology Mm -hmm. the other day, and one of them is Historia. You know, this, these are the nine arts, right? You've got music, you know, mm-hmm. art, and one of them is history. Like, even in ancient Greece, they understood that history was a social construction. And, you know, to weave it back around it, if not to them through Richard Doyle, you know, this notion that when we look back on our stories, the stories that keep us separate from one another, the stories that keep us from listening to what the other person actually has to say, we are looking at a, a, you know, a work of art, you know, we're, that it's, it's a map of what has, what has been and that it's not what is. And that it's, you know, our histories in some sense are getting in the way of our ability to listen to each other, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. because yeah. the history drives identity. And now we're in the situation where, you know, I don't know, what do you think about, because this is, this is the, you're like, let's sleep with everybody. That's that's sort of the opposite of intersectional identity politics. I mean, it's a different kind of intersection, right? So, like, I don't know what intersection oh, politics is. You know, is. Like, like, you don't get to tell me anything about, you don't get to tell me what my experience is because you're not, you know, white male and 34. You know, okay, you, yes. I don't get to tell you what your experience uh, because is. I'm because I'm not black, uh, yeah. Asian. Right, right. And woman. so and so no one, it's like the, you know, postmodernism reaching its sort of like gruesome end game where no one gets to talk. No Did one you, has anything in common because there's always some additional label that you can't speak to. And so it's, you know, it, everyone plays this this game of like, Looping it back, it's a dominance game of okay, like, again. no, I'm even more marginal than you are. Well, did you oh. follow the whole Ezra Klein, Sam Harris uh, debacle recently? No, no, no. Um, it's long and complicated, and Sam Harris's description of it makes it much more long and complicated than it probably need be. But they had a whole flare up about uh, Sam Harris having uh, Charles, um, I forget his last name, I haven't really read his stuff, but he's this political. Um, guy uh lobbyist basically in washington and um they he had sam harris had him on his show a year and a half ago or two years ago and then ezra klein um uh and some related journalists kind of flared up this whole uh thing against sam harris and uh basically character you know characterizing him as supporting racism and um and they made a lot of you know intense accusations against him. And then Sam Harris was, you know, kind of uh, talking about how he was Jewish and he was had a, you know, emphasized that he had uh, comes from a class of, of persecuted peoples. And it was really fascinating, but it didn't really end up being, being very productive. Um, they, they both 
talked over each other a lot. If you actually, if you listen to the podcast uh, with them, because they, they weren't going to talk, and then finally they did because it just seemed unreasonable to not actually have an actual recording. Um, but it was kind of unsettling because um, they're trying to talk about so many things that other people are, feel like they have ownership of, you know, in terms of black identity and um, what's okay to uh, talk about. Because the, the whole origin of the issue was that um, it was about uh, population statistics that this uh, guy had characterized in, his, in this book in the 1990s and had gotten flack for it ever since. Oh, the, the bell curve. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and, oh, I don't know. It, it's tricky. I guess that, that's something that I've thought about a lot recently in terms of people feeling like walking on each other's shoes um, and feeling threatened uh, if they're going to get called out as not being sensitive to other people's uh, suffering and... and you know, just lack of ethnic sensitivity because so many people are, there's the Me Too movement and then in the last few years there's also been, um, you know, the police brutality and this kind of reawakening of, especially since Trump came into power, of racial justice. And, um, yeah. That reminds me of this meme I saw on Facebook today. It was a, this guy was listing a white Honda Civic on Craigslist, and he said, "Well, someone help uh, Photoshop this so that it's it looks black." And someone took the cut it out and then put it at the feet of a bunch of riot police. You know, like, it was like God. Uh, but you know, that's that is where we are. I mean, these things are real, but to what degree are they keeping us? You know, it, again, to go back to Spain, it's like part of it is size the size of the, the governmental unit. But a part of it is that they do really have sort of a more, in general, a more coherent identity mm -hmm. country to country than we do. And, and that they don't get so locked up in this, at least internally. You know, I mean, they're definitely, you know, you're seeing this stuff where like, Europe's having a much harder time with immigration, generally speaking, than the United States has in the past because they're it seems like they're more they have more history to cleave to have you seen Ai Weiwei's film uh human flow yet no oh god that's so powerful i mean he goes all around the world uh to i don't know over 20 countries or something documenting uh immigration challenges in the last five years or whatever and um one of the things that was so mind-boggling about that film to me was the number of border walls that have gone up in europe like people are talking about border walls going up in the United States. It's been happening everywhere in the world. People are shutting down human flow. That's what the film is really capturing. And it's, it's really traumatic. I mean, we've had big migrations in the past after World War II, and, and this is a huge one. But it's changing because people are getting funneled into narrower and narrower entry points. And, and it, yeah. But that just yeah seeing that seeing all those walls being put up i just i didn't i had no idea um that that's been happening so much and yeah that was well i mean walls were extremely enforced until the year 2000 i mean borders uh that's one way that uh, europe kept or didn't keep its uh 
didn't keep its peace. It's a very interesting subject. And I wanted to say, we have to pay attention to medicines that have come to awareness in the last 50 years. They're not a coincidence. We have to be magicians. I don't use the word shaman anymore because of the fact that it's been commercialized. Uh, it doesn't mean I don't believe in shamans. And I so you're a witch now. That's right. <laughs> no, I, oh, okay. I'm magic. Yeah. I'm magic. And I, I observe it every single day. Yeah. And I believe that, you know, there was a reason why this Harry Potter thing uh, attracted... Look, I mean, she's the richest woman in the world or something like that. There's Is a she re- really? Wow. Well, oh, there. Uh, she has clo- a lot. Close. Yeah. She's richer than the Queen of England, which <laughs> is not a small thing. But, I mean, there's a reason that that erupted in your generations. Because, yeah. because inside, it's there. But history and... Uh, and the stories have suppressed that. It's all over the place in, in fairy tales, everything. The story of the sub- suppression of what magical beings we are. Say more about magic, because I feel like I'm actually, you know, I'm writing this book about every chapter is a different quality that the future is going to be, right? The future is going to be... This and this and this. And then the next chapter I'm writing is the future is, uh, you know, like Arthur C. Clarke has that line, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from mm-hmm. magic. So the next chapter, chapter eight, is the future is, is indistinguishable from magic. And I'm, I'm basing this on the, um, this, I, like uh, J.F. Martell and Phil Ford have this podcast called Weird Studies where they were looking at like Aleister Crowley in one episode and talking about magic and how there's a, uh, it's this, it, there's a sense in which it's the exertion of one's will, but it's the exertion of one's will in alignment with the greater will, which shows up in the, in the landscape and in our, in our technologies and all this other stuff. I really like very much what the magician, Scottish magician R.J. Stewart says. He says, real magic is not willing things Mm. into manifestation. Real magic is, or deep magic is, and David Spagner speaks also about deep magic, it's about connection, it's about ecstatic fluidity, it's about Mm. allowing things to be what they are in their full potential not yet manifested. So it's not about this kind of narcissistic, I will things, I will things. No, it's, it's about connection. It's about ecstatic Neptunian fluidity. And it's about uh, allowing more choices, as this cybernetician was saying. We need more options. So allowing, giving freedom, ecstatic freedom to the other. That's for me magic. And given what you just said, so a lot of that would depend on our connection with the earth, with the planet, with ecology, right? And that's 
that's what I worry about the most is um, disconnection from natural rhythms and um, cycles of time. Um, you know, the speeding up of, of people's uh, psyches, um, trying to process too much when it needs more time, even emotional material, you know, you need to process for more moons, <laughs> you know, people feeling they need to get over stuff faster or whatever. Um, yeah. And um, I think it's the medicines that really, beyond anything else, really call us back to connecting with the biosphere, with deep ecology in a way that does bring about more magic in our lives. Because, I mean, it seems like almost like kind of a dichotomy. Either you are working with planetary, the, the life force, you're working on that level of magic, or you're off on your own ego trip trying to manipulate the outcomes of the future. And... Um, I just don't see that much evidence of anyone ever having a lot of long-term success in, in the ego trip type magic. It ruins relationships and it eventually leads people to feeling disconnected from <clears throat> their bodies, right? I mean... Well, a good example of, for instance, I, I reflect as a reflection about those symphonies all that music that was written in the 18th, 19th century. I mean, that's magic. I mean, you get in deep in one, one of these symphonies and start wondering how did that happen? Well, these people were probably uh, totally egocentric, but they were able to get out of the way of that, that yeah, frequency. Well, yeah. And take me back to the music of the 60s. I think that also happened in the 60s in terms of music. So if there's enough of us, or maybe the quality of us, I don't know if enough is a good word because it quantifies, but can step out of the way and download. I mean, that's what we... We think about every single time we do a podcast, we do it because we are broadcasting to people who could, who might be downloaded, downloading a different future than the one that is broadcast to us constantly. Mm. I mean, I'm convinced, again, to come back to me, that I'm downloading a completely different elder age I mean my bones are not brittle so on and so on I mean I can fall and I believe that I'm downloading a whole different program for my body and I'm not saying that out of um, out of um, arrogance uh, I'm saying that out of relationship is it like, what is it, um, I forget which, uh, I, I'm not going to be able to get the, the right page of right. the Tao Te Ching, but it's like towards the end, and he's talking about the, the, the bow that the, the brittle branch breaks in a strong wind and the supple branch can bend and, mm -hmm. you know, that it's like 
you 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 remain magical fluidity you, yeah you, you you keep you don't put the border wall up exactly and you're and then it allows it to you know you can fall over and not break a hip yeah. you know so, absolutely absolutely i flew across the room Stepped on a carpet, flew across the room. Yeah. Uh, scratched yeah. my knee carpet. like a kid. <laughs> scratched my knee. And, oh, man. And, but it's out of the relationship that um, I, I, me, whoever me is, just thinks this body is an incredible, I mean, spaceship. I mean, would you, go, would you, would you let your spaceship fall apart? Or be in relationship with it so that you and it, you whatever it is, and it could have the best journey possible. I'm now feeling kind of bad about how I've been letting my my automobile maintenance slide. It's okay, sweetheart. (laughs) Uh, You can always uh, get it back on track or uh, magic. Yeah, <laughs> it's magic. No, I mean really magic. But there is another point that I really want to bring is uh, this uh, magician or shaman or medicine man Bradford Kinney. He speaks a teaching by him is speaks about the spiritual thermometer, mm-hmm. and I think we are freezing now. You know, the hardening like walls and and and, and isolation. We need hot ecstatic magic. Meaning, like, the sun in our chest, you know, we need to, to bring more uh, burning, burning in, in the chest, you know, and, and give that breath into the daily life. Give that hot uh, energy and, and beautiful, it's one of the teachings of the, of the medicine, you know, remembering the, the forgotten, oh, of being fully alive. We are kind of sleepwalking, like we need to remember who we are and what it's all about. Together, it's not one narrative. No, it's it's a weaving of and playing with each other. No, but in a really ecstatic way, and not with a big words. No, no, really, not a daily ecstasy. Cultivating the daily ecstasy with each other in a playful way, not with a cavernous voice of. I'm the magician. No, no, it in a in a playful, childlike way. I think mm. we need that a lot, especially now. We are so ultra serious and ultra. You know, it's just, we need some again ecstatic fluidity and and like in your music. Up. Yeah, yeah. No, really, yeah. like in your music. And you gave me the other day. You gave me like five or six ecstasies. And I'm and I'm learning that ecstasy is <laughs> ecstasy is not like orgasm. I mean, you could have orgasm and and feel ecstasy. But uh, we were together the other day, and you gave me this massage, and uh, and I mean, you could see my face turned towards the sun. Yeah, you were super lit. In, <laughs> <laughs> right. right. But I mean, let's give ecstasies to each other. Well, that's okay. So you're tying into what I wanted to just say, which is All that right, I've been on this quest uh, to, you know, do deep healing and therapy with my parents, you know, which is something that 
didn't happen that much in the 60s for sure. I mean, in the 50s and the 60s when they started doing the SRI, you know, uh, psychotherapy research with couples and stuff, and there was some family stuff going on. But now I think we're getting culturally mature enough where we can actually really sit down and have like, it doesn't have to be super serious, but it, it can be really, and it, it doesn't even have to be with the medicine, uh, with psychedelic medicines, but having more options to get into that um, type of ecstasy and super lit experience with elders and with our families and stuff, it, you know, that's, that would be a total treasure. And I think that would help oh. a lot of people do a lot more healing. Um, especially uh, the Arab world and parts of the world that have really struggled since the World War Twos and Ones because they didn't get as great of a hand out of that whole deal. Um, yeah. And um, so... Are your see. parents open to this? I've, I've certainly... Uh, I, yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. It was like, I, I remember two years ago, I had a conversation with my dad, a really tense conversation in the car which is part of the problem, right? It's set and setting. Yes, yes, like You don't yes. get into this shit on the highway. Um, but we had this, you know, this really kind of tense discussion where I was, you know, he was saying, you know, your most important asset is your mind and, like, don't chance ruining it with drugs, which is, like, you know, the line that you hear from people who are control freaks and have, are afraid of having a bad trip. Can you give me another Jack Daniels, though? Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. you know, maybe some cocaine. Like, yeah. um, Wow, your dad's cool. No, I mean, not, you know... <laughs> Right, right. These are just, you know, uh, you know, this isn't my dad. It's just sort of that yeah. that mindset, you know. Yeah. And you know, I'm sitting there saying, "But dad, look at the, you know, look at this peer-reviewed research." Which, of course, he can't because he's driving and it's just pissing him off. And then uh, was it like two weeks ago? Michael Pollan's book came out, and it's getting reviewed in New York Times. And my dad emails it to me. He has serious street cred, yeah. And I'm like, oh, look at that. There you go, set and setting. You know, you're willing to indulge, even though you think it's liberal nonsense. You're, you know, it is still, it still has the authority of being the New York liberal Times. Liberal nonsense, yeah. And then there's something about, like, me just, uh, again, with the intergenerational thing, it's like, this message couldn't have come from you or I. It had to come from Michael Pollan, who's a best-selling square yeah, right. You know, Her like he's like he's he's like the dad that we need that we all need and deserve right now. He's like I don't know, I don't know. but I tried it, and you know it's funny because he talks about five meo DMT and like how he had like a horrible experience, but you know he's still candid about the fact that he kind of screwed up and like didn't go into it with the the right sort of guidance or whatever. Is is that how it? At least the discussion around it. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, he's only, I think he's admittedly, at this point, only tripped like seven times in recent history. And then he had like one or two lighter mushroom trips when he was younger. Um, so, I mean, he's bound to encounter some more challenging aspects of the psyche at some point. And, and it's cool that that hasn't dissuaded him. I mean, I don't know. It sounds like he's got a healthy amount of fear um, <laughs> as well. But, yeah. I think the thing about that, though, is more that if we're actually talking about psychotherapy, the really like kind of more masculine oriented, you know, the ultimate type experiences that come at the fastest rate are not really going to be that much benefit to most people that are actually interested in healing their minds and their, and their you know, emotional states. 
and obviously that's not even being evaluated. Um, I mean, they're not doing clinical trials with, oh, here, load up this bowl of 5-MeO-DMT, you know? So, yeah, uh, I think it's going to be more of a kind of feminine approach that's more cautious, obviously, and that will win out and really actually start changing people's lives for the better, not just, you know, um, soldiers coming back from war, which is one of the things that I first thought about when I saw that the Mercers were giving a million dollars to MAPS was like, oh, everyone, you would think everyone would be like, wait a minute, are they just, you know, trying to fix them up and then ship them back out or something? Well, that's Bob Forte's take on the oh, whole thing, that, you know, I mean, not to, Bob is, not to, you know, give him terrible. more airtime than he deserves, <laughs> but like, we do live in a complicated world with, you know, where these any movement is at risk of being co-opted and spun and manipulated. And it's totally reasonable for people to think, oh, good, like we found a way to keep people fighting. But if the results keep coming in that it's so much more effective in treating depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, all these conditions that have had no major advancements really ever, um, I mean, I was just... I was just listening uh, to the Psychedelic Salon last night, which I never listened to any of the Terrence McKenna talks anymore because I just heard way too much, of course, <laughs> in my Terrence McKenna career. But but there was a clip in there about Prozac and stuff, and I know I've heard that Terrence uh, was using antidepressants in the 90s, and uh, that just makes me kind of bummed because he had such powerful medicines already at his disposal, and yet through his own internal challenges and just, you know, Taking on, he took on a lot of spotlight too, and he took on a public persona that wasn't easy to take on in some ways. Um, he result, you know, resorted to that towards the end of his life, and um, and now finally people may be getting access to these powerful psychotherapeutic uh, tools, and um, it could lead to just incredible changes. I hope. I don't know. I mean, I don't really foresee a major backlash from Jeff Sessions and the Trump administration. They have so much else going on, and now Trump and Jeff Sessions hate each other. So Really? Oh, yeah. He's oh, very yeah. publicly like shamed him so many times now. Walls are kind of fractal. With Trump, walls fractal out really yeah. fast. Yeah. I, I, I want to answer that which you said uh, yeah. about uh, Terrence McKenna taking antidepressants. Uh, we had a saying in the 60s, and it was better life through chemistry. <laughs> and it's the same thing. Remember magic? It's all homeopathy in the sense that it's all a relationship. Now, did Terence McKenna have the right relationship with those chemicals? I don't know. But I believe that it's possible to have the right relationship yeah. with any chemical that you take. Like, I will not take an antibiotic until I have the right relationship with it, and so on and so forth. So in that sense, I mean, because uh, homeopathy is all about relationship, and mm -hmm. it's a, a relationship, uh, very, 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 very refined relationship, conversation between your body and the substance. But you can turn that up to the max and talk about if you have the right relationship with um, 
Wellbutrin, then it's all right to take Wellbutrin. And, uh, and if you check out the relationship of Wellbutrin with psilocybin, it's okay to do that too. But to actually uh, have the opportunity to, what Michael Pollan's pointing out is that this is a new thing. It's having a guide. It's in a clinical, hopefully, setting. But establishing better protocols, because I had uh, challenging experiences as a youth experimenting with psychedelics that led me to the hospital and, I mean, some pretty crazy experiences. <clears throat> and I wouldn't probably have had that if I had proper education. I mean, I had Irwid at the big dawn of the mm -hmm. 2000s, and that was great. But I didn't have hold your hair back. No, you it, doesn't, it, it doesn't keep you from running out the door, you know, and doing dumb stuff. Um, yeah. So. Well, that's what I'm talking now, about the quality of the relationship. Right. Mm -hmm. But to, for people to, to even have, for them to have the option and and to be able to try that, not in a you know going to a festival or a show and maybe drinking, because I think that's super common is for people to drink with psychedelics when you're young and trying it out because they want to smooth it out and stuff. Yeah. But to actually do it in a therapeutic session and have the juxtaposition of that versus well-being or something, that's, I think Absolutely. that would be powerful. I mean, we're, hopefully some of us are refining ourselves as human beings. And I remember in 19, uh, 1969 or something like that, uh, this van, I was living in Spain in the mountains, and uh, it was fantastic. And, and uh, this van stopped, and uh, these people came in, and, uh, and they said, I said, where are you going with your van? <laughs> And they said, oh, we're going to the Amazon. And I was probably tripping at that time. But <laughs> I, I can't even tell this story because it's just, so, it's just so guttural, you know. Mm -hmm. But I just saw that evolution... The changes in history and human, human thing. Oh, it's, I just thought, oh, they're the wave that goes to the Amazon, mm. and then we're all, we're the wave that's in Spain in the mountains in 1969. I don't know, I can't even, as I say, tell this story because it was so. To me, there's all these different waves of people mm -hmm. doing, you know, I, whatever. What's next? I think there's going to be an extinction. I do think there's going to be a vast extinction, extinction in about 100 years. Um, I don't know if there's a romantic story about who, uh, who survives. And, uh, well, I you know, I mean, there's vol super volcanoes, there's asteroids, there's lots of options. You mean because of climate change and human negligence of our impact on... Yeah, people doing uh, humanity, doing yeah. itself in, yeah. And, but there'll be, many, there'll be many other waves, or, well, or should that be extremely humble and say, I have no fucking idea. That's what I, that tends to be my favorite. Yeah, I was, I was trying... Certain people that we interview say that there will be an extinction 
say that they see it. And a breakthrough. Breakdown and breakthrough. I think that is the, the what we, we, we keep thinking, giving emphasis to thinking instead of, as one of our guests, uh, Steve Gallegos, speaks of reconnecting thinking with feeling. Mm. He speaks of we are living the emotional dark ages. But like deep feeling, not uh, uh, neo-romantic. No, no, like like another way of knowing. He speaks of knowing through energy, and this is, has been very much the Native American way. Like uh, Joseph Rael, this healer, uh, Ute healer from here. No, he speaks of feeling the energy with our whole bodies, not only thinking. He says thinking is is a splendid tool, splendid. Uh, way of knowing, but it's not the only one, and has become a tyrant for the other ways of knowing. So we have to reweave, rebalance our feeling way as sensing energy, our dream time uh, function, imagery, mm -hmm. you know, deep imagination, and so forth, no? and deep sensing too, very grounded, very embodied. And that way could be, a, 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 I think, a cultural renaissance mm -hmm. that we cannot imagine. Yes. We we could uh, we could uh, uh, bring this conversation around by asking each of us what's next. Yeah. Well, bef right before that, I, I just want to say that what you just said, Jose, reminds me of what you said earlier about how true brilliance is also like joyful and heartful. Mm. You know, and and I gave this, and I'm going to say that this is what I think is next because it's what I hope is next. You know, and everybody's got their their self-advertising uh, evolutionary narrative that says, oh, the future is going to be this, you know, and it's like what you are. Um, but a couple of years ago, I don't know if I told you when the first time we, I think we did talk about when I was on probation the first time we linked mm -hmm. up and how the only way that I could leave the state to speak on festival mm -hmm. circuit was if I led sobriety discussions at the festivals. Oh, that's great. Right, I know. I know. I was, like, I was like, so all I had to do was get a guest book to bring back to my probation officer of all these people saying I'd done a good job, right? And like my name on the schedule, showing that this was a transformational sobriety talk. Beautiful. Probation officer did not give a damn what transformational sobriety really means, but what it meant to these audiences, what it meant to me, was that if you're that there. You know, Salvador Dali, like, I am drugs, you know, that were made out of yeah. psychoactive mm -hmm. chemicals. So nobody's ever really sober. Yeah, that's what Dennis McKenna says all I'm yeah. sorry to tell you, but you're always running on drugs. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you. Ecstatic sobriety. Yes. <laughs> so, so what is sobriety? we got to come up with a new definition. Because it, it clearly still means what it means, right? It means making lucid choices on some level and so what is what is that and to me it seems that you're making your best choices you're you're you are less a a slave to your impulses when you are listening with as much of yourself as you can when you are allowing the rest of your body to speak. And this gets us back to Me Too and the whole power dynamic between, you know, all this stuff. I mean, we know about 
the cardiovascular, you know, the, the cardiac brain, and we know about the enteric brain, and we know that even like, you know, the cognition is something that's about the relationship between the organism and its environment. And so it's really like mind or thought doesn't even stop at the body. It's like it fades mm -hmm. sort of into the environment in every direction. Mm -hmm. So the only way you're really making a sober decision is if you're not really making a decision because a good leader in the like I Ching kind of sense is listening to his, you know, the good king is listening to his advisors. And he he's not up there declaring things from the throne. He's simply organizing all of the messages into an action. And so it's like, you don't, you don't, you don't, he, yeah. yeah. You don't make a choice. I mean, you know, this is like the I Ching, yeah, you know, yeah, the archaic, you. archaic <laughs> sense of it. But yeah, that whoever's in the throne isn't actually choosing mm -hmm. anything. You know, sobriety is entirely a process of active listening, I think, to the, the parts of us that we've, you know, that we've ignored. And I think that that is what comes next because there's no way for us to otherwise navigate the complexity of this time. What about you? <laughs> um, well, I don't have a lot of confidence that technological advancements in interactivity and virtual and augmented reality are going to contribute much to human evolution or aside from being really cool <laughs> and i have vr set up here and i've been tempted and entertaining the possibilities but on the flip side i've also been you know very involved in organic farming and permaculture and the problem I have with permaculture as a movement is that it's very much tune in, drop out. And um, I don't think people want to go back to the land. Ultimately, people want to go to cities. People want to become more connected. They want to be immersed within larger social groups. They want to feel connected to the whole fucking planet and all the people out there. They want to connect with new people that blow their minds. That, And that's still a huge opportunity. I still meet new people each year that are totally blow my minds and contribute a new piece for me. So those are, those are big opportunities, but for the youth, it just seems like a complicated kind of uh, transition period where there's just so many options technologically that either you, you get into overload and you want to go back into a native kind of more simplified mindset and so you starve yourself or, you know, go through periods of abstinence from technology and social interaction of different kinds. But I, I don't know. I, I think that for the next, like, 20 years, there could be some pretty big breakthroughs in science that really blow people's minds. I mean, like, I do think that seeing the earth from the moon was a huge breakthrough for humanity. I think there's those levels of breakthroughs that can really help us all kind of really grok how we're so in interconnected and so dependent on each other's evolution. Um, I go through cycles of wanting to not be as connected to people that I find to have distasteful ideologies. Um, like, 
my relatives, you know, but I've been, I'll always be like, no, I can't cut people off. I have to engage and be willing to talk. And uh, so I try to do that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Ultimately, what Jose was talking about earlier, that that is the major leap is that people have not been super lit emotionally for so long. Um, maybe in small circles here and there in monasteries or in special conditions throughout history, there's been pockets of people who have gotten to have really amazing, ecstatic, prolonged, visionary selfhoods. But for most people, they just haven't gotten there yet at all. And so even just glimpsing that through various means, I don't feel like festivals are really that great at doing that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, because there's so many social dynamics and festivals that still carry over a lot of the bag, you know, because it's a party atmosphere, there's all the abuse cycles, you know, and, and gender issues and a lot of that. To me, I always see that when I go to those kind of events, aside from all the really great things that happen and the beautiful art and creativity that occurs. But yeah, um, I don't know. I think Terrence's big message was about artists right and creatives really transforming culture into something that is really inspiring and just totally blowing your minds all the time i think that's working on many levels because it shows people okay that is so beyond where i'm at right now in terms of my experience but it's out there and that's something that i could potentially have access to if i line my ducks up you know and so those are critical visions to be getting out there. And we aren't living in a totalitarian state that is suppressing poetry and music and arts. Maybe that was some of the biggest problems with communism, right? Is that it suppressed people's souls coming out of the closet and into prose and into painting. And so, yeah, I, I don't know. I tend to feel like things are getting better and that human consciousness is evolving underneath all of the technology, technological advancements. Human consciousness is moving forward and we're becoming more connected. And um, so ultimately I feel like that's all good, but then there's the survival aspect that Joanna highlighted and we just may not be able to get our shit together in time. And that's just that, you know, I mean, we, we can only do so much as individuals and as groups to really change the Titanic, you know, <laughs> I mean, uh, but enough of us hopefully are going to be sensing and feeling at a deep enough level that when we get to those critical junctures where we got to get our shit together, we are going to see it enough and feel that force coming out of the planet that, you know, we got to make changes. Um, and yeah, I mean, Trump, um, in many ways, uh, is such a huge opportunity to expose the mechanisms of ego and of, of, of despotic and, and just totally um, unkind mentality, you know, or of, of possession, really. He's, he's really so possessed by, um, it's not so much about entity as a lack of connection, you know, and that could have long-term benefits looking back. I mean, we were talking about Trump versus Dixon because a lot of people have been talking about that. And um, he's such a, I mean, Nixon was so much more neat in some ways. Trump is just so outlandish. And he's, he, I, I really feel like he's exposing a lot of the Wetiko, you know, 
That I, is... I, I just think a big problem is the disconnected mind and penis. Mm. Sorry to interrupt you. His mind and his penis are disconnected? Yes. <laughs> well, that's, that's what oh, you get really? when you put coke on your dick. I mean, that's like... Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, my God. You know, to, to sensitize it, you know? Talk about raising generation, tell me? generations of children, you know? Like, can we stop... I mean, um, yeah, not to get yeah. on a rant, but can we stop yeah. cutting them up when they're born? That would be great. You know, that'll make a huge difference. Oh, yeah. I think it'll make it a, a lot easier for men and women to meet A lot of things like that. Yeah. I was just watching Steve Martin and, uh, and, Mar and Martin Short. It's funny. I didn't thought about the two Martins. MSSM. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I was blown away right in the beginning when Martin Short says to Steve Martin, every time I watch you... On uh, in a film or something, I'm whelmed. Yeah, <laughs> that was so funny. I totally cracked up when you said that. I'm whelmed. Oh man. So I think that's a good way to. But see, someone like are Trump we whelmed? Could never are have we whelmed? Kind of, oh, just awesome, joyous. I mean, they're undermining each other's egos and creating incredible humor and joy at the same time. And it's all a challenge of not actually getting. They're they're trying to one each one up each other, and yet. They're also just trying to create this collaborative, hilarious space. And they wrote each other's jokes. Yeah. <laughs> Let's give you the last word. Oh, my, that was my last word. I, I'm whelmed. <laughs> <laughs> What's the future? Hopefully it'll be whelmed. <laughs> Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod network, along with Third Eye Drops, The Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs. I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned, because we have some awesome episodes coming up on Future Fossils. But for now, may your now be exquisite, long, and wonderful.